Well, we continue our study of the book of Hebrews as we come to the end of chapter 12, which has been all about running the race with endurance, that race that God has set before us. Our focal passage will be the last nine verses of the chapter, uh, verses 18 uh, through 26. But first, let's remind ourselves of the historical context in which the book was written and then briefly review uh, four key truths that we find in the first 17 verses of Hebrews 12. The book of Hebrews was written to Hebrew believers. Hebrew believers who were suffering persecution under the Roman Empire. They had grown weary, frightened, and discouraged living out their Christianity in a society that was hostile to their faith. They were struggling with the cost of following Christ. And they were in danger of compromising their faith in order to escape suffering. There was the temptation to retreat from Christianity and return to their old Judaism. The entire book of Hebrews is written to prevent that very thing from happening and to admonish these Hebrew believers, and especially here in chapter 12, don't grow weary, don't become discouraged, but endure the race. Remain faithful to Jesus all the way across the finish line, even if it means martyrdom. Now, today in America, we are not suffering the same degree of persecution the Hebrew believers were suffering. But we are living in a society that is becoming increasingly hostile to the Christian faith. And all the signs point to that persecution only intensifying. And this is the primary reason I chose the book of Hebrews as our present study, to prepare us for the conflict ahead and to equip us to stay true to Christ no matter what opposition we may encounter. This is not a time for the church to retreat in fear. This is a time for the church to stand up for Christ, to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ, realizing that message of His death, burial, and resurrection is the only hope for the ills of our nation. Because what ills our nation is what? The evil that resides in the human heart. And the only remedy is what? A forgiven and cleansed heart as Jesus takes up residence there, and not just takes up residence, but what? Takes charge as Lord of all. So we too need the exhortation found in the book of Hebrews, the exhortation to remain faithful to Christ in the midst of our present hardships and suffering and the persecution that is coming. Now look uh, now in your notes at the review, at the review of the key truths in Hebrews 12, 1 through 17. First, the Christian life is a spiritual marathon, or we should say a grueling, painful spiritual marathon that begins with my conversion to Christ and ends at death when I cross the finish line to enter the eternal realm of heaven. 
how I run the race will determine either the loss or gain of eternal heavenly rewards. Remember Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That's referring to believers. And that judgment seat of Christ for believers has nothing to do with salvation. Our salvation, our relationship with Jesus is secure on the basis of not our works, but His work, His grace. But what we will be evaluated and judged for is how we lived the Christian life, how we ran the race. And that word judgment in the Greek text is the word bima, and it actually refers to a raised, elevated platform on which they would give athletes the victor's crown, very similar to the platform that you see at the Olympics when they award uh, the athletes their medals. Uh, and so what will be the basis on which those rewards will be given? How will God determine whether we win and receive those rewards? Well, that's the second truth. To cross the finish line, a winner involves three things. First, to become more like Jesus Christ as I advance in the race. With each step, to become more like my beautiful Savior. And then second, to win others to Jesus, to join me in the race. So to become more like Him, that He would be put on display through me, that others might be drawn to Him. It is our responsibility to make Christ known to a lost world, to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then third, to remain faithful to Jesus to the very end of the race. And those will be the three determining factors on whether or not we receive rewards or not. And then look at the third truth, which is really the very heart of chapter 12. Success in the race requires developing spiritual athleticism, laying aside all sins and hindrances that could easily entangle us, that would weight us down, slow us down, that could possibly distract us, get us off the course. We're to remain focused on Jesus and then submitting to the hardships of the race as God's disciplinary training to build our character and our endurance. That is the heart of Hebrews 12, that the hardships that God allows to come into our lives are for our good so that we might share His holiness and have an opportunity to see our spiritual muscles developed and to build up our endurance. And then look at the fourth truth, and we, this has been our focus the last few weeks. To finish the race well, I am to be considerate of my teammates, pursue peace with all men, strive for holiness with God, and stay clear of two things that can derail me in this race, and that is bitterness and unhealthy, uncontrolled, unbridled appetites and passions. Now we're ready to examine the last nine verses of the chapter, which emphasize the motivation, the motivation to finish the race well. What should be our motivation to endure the pain, to endure the fatigue, and to continue going forward for Jesus? Well, the first motivation is the love of God, the love of God, and very specifically, Two wonderful blessings that God's love has given us. And the first being, get this down in your notes, 
access to God. The writer of Hebrews is saying, you should be motivated to run the race with endurance because you have been given access to God and all that God has to offer you. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, there in your notes, at verses 22 through 24. It says, but you have come. And I would suggest you circle that phrase or underline that phrase. But you have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, and to Jesus. Now, folks, when it says at the very beginning, you have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, this is speaking of heaven. And please notice, it does not say we are going there, but we have already come. We have already arrived. God's love has given us access to heaven, not just after death, but right now, in the present, we have come to the city Abraham was looking for in Hebrews 11, verse 10. It says, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Earth is not our home, as it says in Philippians 3:20. for our citizenship is where? In heaven. We are just pilgrims, aliens passing through. In verses 22 through 24, the verses we just read, we discover that God's love has given us access to five wonderful realities of heaven. First, notice at the end of verse 22, God's love has given us access to what? Myriads of angels. Myriads of angels of heaven. Who we are told, remember in Hebrews chapter 1, can you remember that far back in our study? Uh, verse 14, it says, are they not? All ministering spirits, speaking of the angels, sent out to render service for who? For the sake of those who will inherit salvation. Angels are ministering spirits sent to serve us. Do you remember 2 Kings chapter 6 when a great army was sent to capture the prophet Elijah under the cover of night? The scripture tells us they came and they completely encircled the city where his, he was residing. His servant woke up early in the morning. And as he was up and about, he noticed this massive army that had encompassed the city. And in panic, he runs to Elijah, his master, and he says, Master, Master, last, what shall we do? And this is what Elisha answered him. He said, do not fear. Do not fear. For those that are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O oh Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And then the Bible says, the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. That was that spiritual army that God had sent to protect his servant. Hebrews 6.12 says, for our struggle is what? Not against flesh and blood, but against 
rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And aren't you glad that we don't fight that battle alone? That there's not only demons under the control of the devil, but there are angels, ministering spirits, sent to serve us, to protect us. And we get a little glimpse of this in the book of Daniel. Are you familiar with the book of Daniel? Our ladies, I mentioned, are studying that on Wednesday nights. And we see there how Gabriel and Michael often protect God's people. How they resist demonic activity to give their servants understanding and wisdom and guidance and direction. So we praise God that those same angels exist to serve us today. Look at the second wonderful blessing. God's love has given us access to all the riches of heaven. Uh, Verse 23 says, we are the general assembly, the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Our names are written down as believers, those who have placed their faith in Jesus, turned from their sin to make our hearts His home, to take control. It says those names are written down in the Lamb's book of life. And the firstborn are those who receive the birthright. Those who receive the Father's inheritance. Therefore, as God's firstborn, we have access to all the riches that heaven has to offer. As it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, God has blessed us with what? With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Peter says that we have all things. We lack nothing. But we have all things that pertain to life and godliness. And we appropriate those riches by faith. There's nothing left for us to seek. All is ours in Jesus Christ. And through faith, we're able to see His strength perfected in His weakness. We're able to appropriate His riches in our poverty. And therefore, we can meet every challenge that comes our way. There's nothing that we are inadequate for in Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul wrote in Philippians 4.13, what, I can do what? I can do all things, all things through Jesus who strengthens me. Look at the third wonderful blessing there in verse 23. It says, we've been given also access to God, the judge of all. In other words, we can stand face to face with God, not in fear of judgment. Why? Because Jesus bore our judgment for us and declared us righteous. He who knew no sin, he became sin on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. As a result, the judge of all has adopted us into his family, and the judge now is our heavenly father who cares for us as his children. We read in Luke 18, verse 7, Now, Shall not God bring about justice for His elect who cry to Him day and night? And will He delay long over them? I tell you that He will bring about justice for them speedily. We have a Heavenly Father who loves us with an eternal love. We did nothing to win that love. There's nothing we can do to lose that love. And God is always responsive to the heart cry of His children who come to Him in total dependence and in faith. Look at the fourth blessing. We're told also in verse 23 that we have been given access to heaven where the spirits of righteous men are made perfect. 
the spirits of righteous men are made perfect. We're told in Hebrews 10 verse 14, For by one offering he, Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. In other words, we have been freed from the very penalty and the power of sin, and one day we will be free from the very presence of sin to know perfect purity and holiness. Amen? And even now we can appropriate, again, that power of God to overcome sin, to walk in practical righteousness and holiness. But are you ready for the fifth blessing? And it's the best of them all. God's love has given us access to Jesus. We have access to the one who we're told in the book of Hebrews is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. We've been given access to Jesus who we're told gives mercy and grace to help in our time of need. We're given access to Jesus who we're told is an anchor for the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast. We're told that He's able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. God's love, God's love has given us access to heaven and all it possesses. But notice, and don't miss this, the author of Hebrews puts all of this in sharp contrast to the unapproachable inaccessible God of the Old Covenant. Open your Bibles. I don't have these verses in your notes, but I want you to open your Bibles, and let's look at verses 18 through 21. 18 through 21. Now, what these verses are, it's a, it's a, they are a summary of when God gave the law to Moses and to the children of Israel at Mount Sinai after their exodus from Egypt. Uh, The historical record is found in uh, chapter 19 of the book of Exodus. And this is just a beautiful summary of the children of Israel's experience with God at Sinai when he gave them the law. Look at verse 18. For you have not come to a mountain that may be touched and to a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind and to the blast of a trumpet, and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word should be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. Now listen, beloved, the reason the author draws our attention to both Mount Sinai and then the heavenly Mount Zion is to contrast the immense distance that separated the worshiper from God under the old covenant with the unrestricted access to God under the new covenant. In the children of Israel's experience at Mount Sinai, they were what? Overwhelmed by fear. In the presence of God. We're told there was fire. There was darkness. Gloom. Whirlwind. The blast of trumpet. All which are symbols of God's judgment. They were told that if they even touched the mountain. That they would die. God's voice struck such terror in their hearts. The people literally begged God to no longer speak to them directly. 
that he would just speak to them through Moses. And then verse 21 says, even Moses, the mediator of the old covenant, he was full of fear and trembling. The message at Mount Sinai was loud and clear. Holy God is unapproachable and inaccessible to sinful man. That was the message. Holy God is unapproachable, inaccessible to sinful man. Again, all of this, again, is in sharp contrast to verses 22 and 24, which emphasizes what? Our unrestricted access to God, to heaven and all it contains. Well, the question is, how can that be? I mean, God is still the same holy God that He was at Mount Sinai. We're sinners just like the children of Israel were sinners. So how can this be? Well, the answer is found in the next wonderful blessing we've received from God's love. And get it down in your notes, forgiveness of sin. Forgiveness of sin. We have unrestricted access to God and all the riches of heaven because of the forgiveness of sin found through the sacrifice, through the death of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 24 there in your sermon notes. And to Jesus. We come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Now let's just, this is one of the primary themes uh, throughout the book of Hebrews, this new covenant and the forgiveness that we have through the blood of Jesus. Take your Bibles and let's just I'm not going to take a lot of time. Just remind ourselves of several of the key passages. Go back to chapter 9. Chapter 9 of the book of Hebrews. Look at verses 11 through 15. It says, But when Christ appeared as high priest, and what is the purpose of a high priest? To mediate between God and man. To bring man into the presence of God and to bring God's blessings to man. So it says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, He says, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. Notice what it's talking about, heaven. So it says, Jesus entered heaven to become our high priest, to mediate between us and God, to bring us into God's presence. And how did he do that? Verse 12, not through the blood of goats and calves, which could never remove sin, and that's why they had to be repeated, day after day, year after year in the Old Covenant, but through His own blood, which, of course, was shed on Calvary's tree. He entered the holy place once for all, having, notice, obtained what? Eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, referring to the Old Covenant ritual, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without uh, blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason, He, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant in order that since a death has taken place, His death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of what? Eternal inheritance. Again, that inheritance that we have access to now in heaven is ours. Look at chapter 10. 
Look at verses 15 through 18. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart, and upon their mind I will write them. He then says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. It's talking about the fact that when Jesus Christ left the glories of heaven, He came to this earth for one express purpose, to die on that cross for you. As I mentioned earlier, He who knew no sin, He became sin on your behalf, that you might be made the righteousness of God in Him. He took the punishment you deserved. He paid the wages for your sin, the penalty of your sin. And He rose again and He's alive. And He extends forgiveness to all those who will put their trust in Him. Who will turn to Him for forgiveness. Turn to Him in repentance from sin. To make their heart His home where He can dwell, take up residence, and take charge. And take charge. And then notice the wonderful blessing and access that is ours now. Look at verse 13. Since there, 19, 19, same chapter. Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence. Confidence to what? To enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Remember that holy place? No Israelite could enter. Only the high priest entered. How, how, how often? Do you remember? One time a year on the day of atonement. Carrying that blood sacrifice. And they would actually tie a rope to his ankle with bells. Because if they heard those bells, they knew that he had dropped dead in the presence of God where they could pull him out. They did not have access to the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament. We have access 24-7. Unrestricted access. To enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil. That is his flesh that he gave, that was torn for us. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now going back to Hebrews 12, verse 24, notice the contrast also, this is beautiful, between Abel's blood and Christ's blood which we're told speaks better than the blood of Abel. See, Abel's blood, what did it speak? It spoke out what? For judgment, for justice, for reckoning. In contrast, Christ's blood speaks from heaven and announces mercy for the sinner. Abel's blood made Cain feel guilty and drove him from the presence of God in despair. But Christ's blood frees us from guilt and has given us access to the very presence of God 24-7. The most significant contrast between the experience of the children of Israel at Mount Sinai and the Christian experience at the heavenly Mount Zion is that at Mount Sinai, when God spoke to His people, the people cried what? No more! No more! It's too terrible. It's too frightening. Don't speak to us anymore. But in the Christian experience, in the Christian experience, we hear the sprinkled blood. That sprinkled blood speak 
for us. The blood of Jesus. The one who is the mediator between God and man. And what does that blood say? What does it say? I'll tell you what it says. It says, I love you. I accept you. I love you. I accept you unconditionally through the work of Jesus Christ, your Savior and Lord. I forgive you. I've purchased you. I cleanse you. I protect you. I keep you. I will always be there for you. So the first motivation to finish the race well is the love of God, which has given us access to God through the forgiveness of sin. And the second motivation to finish the race, and we'll end here today, is the Word of God. First motivation is the love of God. And the second motivation is the Word of God. Again, the love of God has given us access to God through forgiveness. Therefore, we do not lack the resources to run the race. We can appropriate all of God's riches, all of God's strength to endure, to remain faithful, to become more like Jesus, to draw others to Jesus. But also, there's the motivation of the Word of God. Look at the two bullet points under the Word of God. Greater privilege brings greater what? Responsibility. Greater privilege brings greater responsibility. Hebrews 12.25 says, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Don't refuse him who is speaking. Because greater privilege brings greater responsibility. And then the second bullet point, greater responsibility brings what? Greater warning. Greater warning. Look at the latter part of verse 25. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, referring to the old covenant, much less shall we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. This is actually the fifth and the final warning in the book of Hebrews, which all relate to our response to the Word of God. We, we've, we've emphasized this throughout the study. This is one of the unique features in the book of Hebrews, these five warning passages. And every one of them relate to our response to God's Word. Now, why? Think about this. Why does this last warning, not to refuse him who is speaking, come right on the heels of all that God's love has given us access to and the forgiveness of sins? Why? Isn't it pretty obvious? Let's be transparent for a moment, all of us. Don't we find it easy to abuse God's love? To abuse God's grace? In the race, we tend to shorten our stride, cut corners, look for shortcuts, slack off, take it easy, slow down to a comfortable trot knowing that God loves us with an unfailing love and His grace is there. So the writer comes with this strong warning. He says, yes, yes, you're not under the law. You are under God's grace. But just because there's a new arrangement doesn't mean there's been a change in management. Jesus is still Lord. And as Jesus said, why do you call me Lord? And not do the things that I say. See, the fact that we have greater privilege, the fact that we have access to heaven and all that it offers, 
primarily Jesus, something that those Old Testament saints never knew, we bear greater responsibility. And with that greater responsibility, there's greater warning. Now, since this is the last of the five warnings, let me just close with just a brief review of those five warnings because they build on one another. And you won't find these in your sermon notes. You may just want to, if, if you uh, um, are just starting this study, you haven't been with us, you may just want to jot down the warning passages uh, on the side. We're not going to take the time to go back and look at them. Uh, my time's just too limited. I just simply want to walk through these in closing to help you remember what they were. What was the first warning? It was in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And this is where it begins, drifting from God's Word. In other words, just neglecting God's Word. I mean, you may even be under the hearing of God's Word, but you're not doing it. A hearer, but not a doer. So the, the very first step in this decline spiritually is neglecting God's Word. Just subtly drifting away from it and not getting into it, not feeding on it, not studying it. And then where will that inevitably lead? That leads us right to the second warning, which is doubting God's Word. And it's easy to see why. And, that, and the reference there would be chapter 3, verse 7, through chapter 4, verse 13. And you remember that warning highlights the example of the children of Israel who at Kadesh Barnea refused to believe God and because of fear and anxiety refused to obey Him by entering the promised land. And because of not just that one incident, because God said there was a, had been a pattern of refusing to obey Him, He said, I swore you'll never enter my wrath. And for 40 years... They just lived a life of regret in the wilderness. Yes, they knew God's protection. Yes, they knew God's provision in the wilderness. But they never, ever experienced the full blessing God had always intended for them. They forfeited that through their disobedience. And that happens to believers as well. And if you neglect God's Word, if you drift from it, you're inevitably going to begin to doubt it. Because why? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And that, and that doubting creates what? A hard heart. That's why in that warning passage in chapter 3 and chapter 4, he says, Today, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. And how often do we do that? How often do we come to a service like this? Or you sit in your Sunday school class or a Bible study, and your heart is pricked, you're brought under the conviction by the Spirit of God, and then you walk out and do nothing about it. So like what James says, you know, looks at yourself in the mirror, you see what needs to be fixed up, what needs to be changed, but then you turn away from the mirror, and then it doesn't take long, you forgot what you saw, you forgot the issues, and you neglect obedience. But it all began just with simply neglecting. Just a very subtle drift that leads to doubting a hard heart. And then where does that lead us? The third warning, dullness. Dullness towards God's Word. And that is chapter 5, verse 11 
through chapter 6, verse 8. Chapter 5, verse 11 through chapter 6, verse 8. You know, it was just a sluggishness. You know, that's the passage where he says, hey, Hebrew believers, wake up. By this time, you folks ought to be teachers, but you're still babes. I can't even feed you the meat of God's Word. I have to feed you milk. In other words, they had actually digressed in their relationship with Christ. Because we know from the book, when they initially came to Christ, they were growing wonderfully in the Lord. Early in their Christian faith, they endured terrible persecution and stood strong for, for Christ. Now, they're trembling. Now, they're discouraged. Now, they're falling apart. How did that happen? They neglected and drifted from God's Word. They began to doubt God's Word. And then they became very dull, very sluggish towards God, God's Word, which led to their retreat. And then the fourth warning. See, these continue to intensify if you don't stop and see where you are and use it as an opportunity to return to God, get back into His Word. And the fourth warning is despising God's Word. And that's chapter 10. Verses 26 through 39. In other words, this is willful sin. So it begins with just neglecting God's Word. I just suddenly drift. As a result, I begin to doubt, develop a hard heart. And now there's a dullness towards God's Word. You know, I'm just going through the motions, but it really doesn't mean anything. It's not having any impact on my life. I'm not building my life on God's Word, the rock of God's Word. And that's inevitably going to lead to, to willful sin, which is despising God's Word. And then we come to this last warning here in Hebrews 12, verse 25, which is what? Defying God's Word. Refusing to hear Him who speaks. In other words, doing this. Sort of like, forgive me, Carissa, for using you as an illustration, but if you all know Carissa, she never minds the spotlight, good or bad. When she was real little, real little, and she won't mind me saying this. We've had this discussion many times. If y'all know anything about the Downs, Downs children, uh, what do you always think about when you think about a Downs child? Their love, right? Their affection, their, their, their tenderness. And they just have a unique, supernatural ability just to give love, to express affection. And uh, as we often tell Krissa, she, you know, actually has more DNA than the rest of you. You know, she has an extra chromosome, so it just gives her a little more of, uh, of what we don't have, and that's what makes her special. But there's another interesting trait that goes hand in hand with Downs, and that is they are fiercely stubborn and obstinate. And, uh, and what was her practice when she was real small, a little preschooler, if if you began to tell her something and she didn't want to do it, she would turn her back and fold her arms and sometimes even do this. And folks, we laugh at that. But isn't that exactly what we do with God in our relationship many times? God speaking. We turn our back. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. We plug our ears. And y'all all know, the, of course, the famous story. Take it one step further. When at the height of my frustration on one of those occasions, I asked Chrissa, well, Chrissa, 
who's who's the boss of this family anyway? And she turned around, looked at me, and she said, Daddy, you may be the boss, but I'm in charge. (laughs) And again, we laugh at that, but sadly, isn't that exactly the attitude we often have with God? Yeah, God, you may be the boss, you may be Lord, but I'm in charge. I'm the one that's going to stay in control. I'm not going to relinquish my life to you. I'm not going to surrender my life to you. And we resist the Lord. So as we come to the end of this message, let me just leave you with two verses. That really is a powerful exhortation. It goes well with this message. We're talking about what are the motivations to run the race with endurance, to stay true to Jesus all the way to the finish line. And we've emphasized the first one, and the foremost motivation is the love of God, which has given us access to heaven and all of it contains, not in the future, but right now. And so listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all. Therefore all died. And he died for all. Don't miss this. And Jesus died for all that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Jesus Christ is worthy of your surrender. Jesus Christ is worthy of your life. Jesus Christ is worthy of your faithfulness no matter what hardship, suffering, difficulty you're encountering. And He's worthy of that. Not only because of the fact that He gave His life for you on Calvary's cross, but the fact that He's given His life to you right now. All the resources that you need. Why? So now you... He can live his life, what? Through you. He gave his life for you, but not only for you, he gave his life to you so that he could live his life through you. Father, we trust you have spoken through your word. And Lord, my simple prayer would be that we would not refuse him who has spoken. That we would be responsive to your truth today, responsive to your word, whether sitting here as a believer or an unbeliever. That we would come to Jesus to avail ourselves of all that you've done for us, For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.